chaos comes, it's a chance to be initiated. You know, thinking that the United States and its ideas in church have come closest to reflecting reality is like thinking Iceland is the basketball capital of the world. It's actually a psychological disorder. F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out. When a man becomes who he was made to be by God, every day is adventure. Hey guys, welcome back to the Anson's Podcast. I am Blaine. Sam is here in the studio with you me. You always introduce me for me. I'm here. I can do it myself. I, it has... We've uh, noticed... More gravity if someone introduces you. I'm glad that was a someone and not like, if you do it, it's got more gravity. It applies to everyone, but especially to me. <laughs> so I, I haven't been able to help but notice that we've had some really awesome themes lately, but they've all felt a little bit heavy, if I'm honest. If I'm sort of just looking back over the last month, um, it's definitely been a season of some more heavy things, but the topics that we've had scheduled and have passion for have been in the camp that isn't lighthearted. Um, and so I think today, I know I'm needing some of that. I'm needing like a little, a, a little bit of a lighter thing that's not like shame into isolation, into depression, into why are we here though? You know, it just, that, let's, let's let some of the pressure off. So a while ago, we got an email from a reader uh, who, who noticed that every issue of Anson's Magazine has an initiation, a beginning of some kind on the inside cover. And sometimes they are Easter eggy in... Volume three, they're pretty Easter eggy. Volume three, volume one, a little bit harder, but people have figured it out. Yeah. Uh, volume two, pretty straightforward. I think there's about a hundred books that we just put down as a list, uh, arguing that any one of those would actually take you on a kind of journey into maturity. And we got a letter from a guy who had started reading and wanted to know why some of them were included. Actually, the ones that he didn't like are just two of my favorite novels of all time. Yeah, I'm guessing that's going to be the Flannery O'Connor stuff. Uh, <laughs> no one like that wouldn't surprise me. Everyone raises an eyebrow, but no, it was uh, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. Oh, and Lee Fenger's Peace Like a River. Peace Like a River, maybe the most likable novel in the world, besides <laughs> no, like I mean, obviously Red not for this person and The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. Peace Like a River was phenomenal and tends to be the report from people who have just read it. Like I, I was actually just like really surprised by that reaction to that particular book. People have responded to the Flannery O'Connor stuff as well uh, in the past because she can be pretty intense. And I know that you do like her style and like that, I mean, she loves God and will get very in your face. Those I understand. Those are your like, yeah, I mean, everyone just ended up dead at the end of this short story. So that, that Not everyone. Really, <laughs> not everyone. Though. Not the guy holding the gun. That isn't the reason that I think this person had a problem with Peace Like a River. I actually don't know why they did, but I thought that was a very different and more cohesive story. Anyway, 
Let's say that you don't have volume two in front of you or that you may not be a subscriber. We are going to riff through a little bit and maybe even use these as jumping off points onto wider concepts and bodies of work that we think are important. Yeah, so I think I'd begin by saying that the list is really broad. Um, and it's based on the assumption that um, if you want to be cultivating your heart, your soul, your mind, even your joy, you're going to want diversity in the types of things that you're taking in. If you are just single-mindedly, doggedly, only reading theology, I think you're not going to last very long, would, would be my assumption. That, like, that just you need other types of literature, other types of thoughts to prop it up, to give you like space to enjoy it. And so, yes, top down from the left, the, there is Chesterton's orthodoxy as the second one. And that is like the first time I read that book, I think I understood probably 15 to 20% of what he was saying. Like that, and if I'm being good for any book, <laughs> like his thoughts, his understanding, his, his rationale was at once a little bit beyond what I could understand and massively formational for the ways that I would be thinking of theology and the gospel. And let's just no brainer to have that one in there. That one, let's just take one concept, his exploration of the idiot. Oh, is this the, oh no, the idiot, the idiot. No, I think it's the first chapter of orthodoxy. Okay. Um, no, the idiot, we're not, we're not swinging over the Russians yet. No, but where he talks about how the madman. Madman's different than the idiot. Yeah. I was thinking of the madman. Yeah. Is that what it with is? With the circle. Yes. 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 Is more committed, uh, to taking a principle to its extreme than anyone else. And mm. he just argues, he goes, madness is not a departure from the truth. Madness is a commitment to elements of the truth taken to their extreme. And it's really fascinating because what he sort of does is show the ways that we tend to think about relationships, the, th the ways that we tend to make decisions are effective in a particular case. But if we take them and just use them as, you know, the hammer that we apply to every single problem, we aren't left with anything that resembles reality. Mm. We actually depart our shared common world in favor of some destructive rampage. Yeah, one of my favorite parts of that is that the the madman's world is is complete. And he would describe it as like a circle, this like this very small ring. He's like there isn't a flaw with their argument. Like that's one of the examples I think he uses is that like everyone is out to get this person. They say like everyone is against me, and you have two possible reactions to that. One is to say, well, no, we're not. But of course, that's exactly what people would say if they were to try and trick you that you're actually against them. Or you say, well, yes, we are, and you confirm the thing, and both things are confirming, and so you end up with this little loop where it's like it's perfect and it's circular nature. But it's actually very, 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 very small. And you can't, like, it. it is madness. It is, uh, and then he begins to transpose on top of that the contradictions of the cross, 
where he's like, there's actually this other way where weakness is strength and um, humility is wisdom and sacrifice is victory. And he's like, these do not make sense to the world, to the madman. And yet they are the ways in which the world is actually won and overcome and, and reality is changed. And you're like sitting there going, what is that? Whoa. Boom. Let's just move. I'm going to move down the list. So first one, I don't know why we're not going left to right. We're going top to bottom first and then maybe left to right. We have Matthew B. Crawford's shop classes, soul craft, just mandatory reading at the top, then orthodoxy, then Lincoln's Virtues, William Lee Miller. That book has so many words. It just... Also, I've not read read this one. There's no, like, you must have read everything on this list, or that Blaine and I have read the whole thing. I think some of these are are your choices, some are mine. This book I've seen, and I've been intimidated by by the sheer size. Uh, This one is really interesting because... You know, we've talked before how virtue, virtus, means manly strength. And what William Lee Miller does is he reads Lincoln as a free rational agent. And this what is... What does that mean for those of us who don't know what that means? He reads Lincoln as someone who is not principally constrained by external choices. He believes that Lincoln really is making choices that he that he understands in view of long-term goals. And that might sound, maybe that's obvious, but in sort of the world of history and scholarship, that's not a popular way to think of people anymore. That they're right now the fad is to think of what were, what were the circumstances that created a person? What what was the climate that created Shakespeare? It's all action and reaction. And you're not a person. You're just a cause or the effect of a cause. Yeah, exactly. You're built into a system. and it's. But when you read Lincoln, and it's just a fascinating way to read a person, circumstance to circumstance, as making choices— that could have been different. And William Lee Miller will kind of outline all of these other choices were possible. But one, you learn that Lincoln is awesome. And two, this is what stands out to me in that book. Lincoln, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson famously wanted to read and study the best that had been said and thought. And he was sort of the classic post-Enlightenment Renaissance man who wanted to read everything. What Lincoln focused on was moral reasoning on purpose. And Lincoln would say, you know, I may not know the most about a history of politics, but he could, he could really say as a self-taught man, no one has thought longer and harder or read more about morality, the moral duty of the citizen. And so when you put him in a situation that has significant moral outcomes, the Civil War, he is perfectly positioned to think through methodically the moral issues in question. Really interesting of just his depth. Which is something that's unique as a human being and as a president and uh, definitely isn't the case these days. 
I think is our bar. I don't know if I, I do you want to go like literally talk about each and every one or do you want to jump around at this point? Uh, let's jump around. You're <clears> right. Uh, at the bottom of that list, there's Ernest Hemingway's Green Hills of Africa. Um, Hemingway, we sort of have a love-hate relationship with. Um, we, as a family, have a deep love of story and of good storytellers, but we hate when someone is a good storyteller who tells a bad story. And we feel like there's a moral obligation that if you're going to tell a story well, that you should have hope, that you should have ripples of the story of the gospel. Um, they don't all have to be parallel parables. And, um, but there's a certain like tear you hit where you begin to pull on human emotion and Hemingway is able to hit that tear, but also in his, um, more widely known old man in the sea, like everything ends in death and loss and, like you finally get the thing you've been pursuing, but it's devoured. And it's like, wow, there's, there's a the reaction of you bastard. Why did you do this to us? Um, Green Hills of Africa is uh, some of his awesome stories of his hunt and um, his time, like the safari there. It, it, it's also like, you're not quite sure if it's all true or not. Um, anyway, we, we love that because it's just, good storytelling and it isn't all depressing, which was sort of hard to pull off with Hemingway. I'm flipping to the back cover now. A year of biblical womanhood. Uh, might be surprising. So what she does is look at the, uh, the instructions at face value that are given to women in the Bible and try to do it all. Old Testament, New Testament. But what she also does is take a, a deep dive into hermeneutics, which we talked about in the yada, yada, yada podcaster. What are the strategies that you use to make sense of the Bible? And when can you feel confident that you have read the Bible right? And so she looks at some pretty uh, classic passages on women speaking in church and uh, anytime Paul gives like a household order of behavior and does her best to apply tested, uh, proven hermeneutics to the book in question. And what is interesting is that you, you can assume in view of who Jesus is that he's going to be scandalously inclusive uh, of women, minorities, every kind of oppressed person, uh, but that he's also going to radically depart from maybe just a, uh, a humanist vision of what it would look like to include the other. And if you have only thought about the question of women in the Bible in terms of Western debates, I can guarantee you, you have entirely missed the issues in question for the biblical authors and for their audiences. So to look at it and to know that you're reading the Bible well, especially as it comes to something pretty significant like the role of women in God's kingdom, good read. Uh, jumping around again, we've got Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer, which was the book that first began our journey of thinking about food and being vegetarians for 
years and years. Um, back in college, we read it. He begins by telling a story. Um, Jonathan Safran Foer, the author, began his career in writing and telling stories. He, he's not like a, a journalistic writer by trade. And he hits this point where he goes, I, I, I just had a son and I care more about what I put in his mouth than I put in my own. Therefore, I let me tell you the story of my journey into food and why I, I care about things that I do. I'm not going to try and persuade you one way or the other. I'm not going to try and demonize one thing or the other, but I am going to present to you a story that is true and is mine and was so compelling for us that it was better than any documentary on food systems or over farming or monocrops or like all of the things that you're like, I know this, but I don't care. I can watch supersize me while eating a jumbo bag of gummy bears, which is literally what I did the first time I watched that movie. I love that. Yes. Because it's like, I, I think, yes, it's detached when it's facts and numbers and maybe even um, someone doing it for the show of it. But when it was a story, when it was someone's life, it takes on a whole different dimension. And so that, is, that, that was massively pivotal. It's been, mm, gosh, almost 10 years now since I read that book. But Oh, and if I can tag riff on that, just incorporating over on the opposing page, we have Christopher West's Fill These Hearts. You are not a rational being. You are a being who resembles God's being. God is a desiring, emoting, loving being. And when it comes to food, food is a story. Food is desire. Food is not, in most cases, I think that particular kinds of heirloom grains are best for the planet. Food is the feeling of mastery you have when you grill a steak perfectly or the way you hate the way that a certain casserole smells because it smells like your grandma's house and you didn't like being there. Or food is comfort, food is fear. And what Jonathan Safran Foyer does in that book uh, is really dive into how we form our lives around stories. And you can actually extrapolate that principle beyond food into the other arenas where you're making significant decisions. But it's, you know, we've tried. Everyone knows, at least, at some value, that the food system in the United States is imperfect. And in the same way that everyone knows that driving contributes to pollution. But we also know that information does not get people to change their mind before a person changes their mind, they have to change the story they're living in. And you can, man, if you can actually grasp that, it will totally change the way that you relate with the people around you. So I would read that with caution because it was one of the first dominoes to topple for me. And I didn't know it was going to begin toppling other dominoes in that train of thought of if you were going to begin thinking and acting seriously about one category of your life that's probably going to be spilling over into other categories. Okay, we've got a couple of Bill Brysons, <laughs> which we It's like, again, just this almost Jackson Pollock-like collection. Um, Bill Bryson is a 
wonderful storyteller and is so odd. He's a creative nonfiction guy. He does a lot of travel. He does a lot of research. Um, we have, I think, maybe just two of his. I mean, we don't have multiples of many authors. We have two of his. We've got his Shakespeare and his In a Sunburned Country. And um, he's just, he loves the weirdness about people, which is something I love as well. And I think that's part of why I like reading him. But um, they've actually made a movie about his other book, Walk in the Woods, uh, which is his story of the Appalachian Trail. And he doesn't just talk about how he's like afraid to go camping in a tent. He tells you about that, but then he goes into detail about all of the bear attacks that go on for people that are in tents and describes a story of like how he's going to be afraid when he's in there and he's going to hear a bear outside ruffling through. And then you're going to be like, oh my gosh, it's, is it going in the tent? Why? I feel a Snickers in my pocket. Oh dear God is the last thing across your mind before this bear comes in and mauls you. And you're like, why are you, you're so, why? You just gave me seven stories of bear attacks to, to like justify how you're afraid. And also it's kind of like this whimsical, like he's very self-aware that he's odd and that people are odd. And he's kind of got this posture of like, let's all just admit this and life can actually be very interesting. Oh man, his book on Shakespeare is in here. Uh, it's mostly about the world of scholarship surrounding Shakespeare, a figure about whom it's impossible to know very many things. Wonderful book. Bill Bryson also, could it could have been included. He has, um, you know, Stephen Hawking has a brief history of time. I think Bryson's book is called A Short History of the Universe or A Short History of Everything. And Bryson wanted to educate himself. So he kind of went through and went, what do we know and not know about cosmic history? But for the non-scientist reader who kind of wants like a quick grasp on what's out there, very funny book. There's so many of these that the, when I look at this list, I have given away most of these books, some of the multiple copies, and that thing happens where... American Buffalo, Stephen Renella. I lent out three copies of that. One dude read it. And, it, you know, you can't make someone read something, and not all of these are going to be appropriate to the season you're in. And we sort of have, we have an old rule about that, which is skip it. Uh, that was one of the early great pieces of advice that was given to me that has actually made me like books, is when you get into a section that is really just like not connecting, not interesting, pick a different book. Uh, maybe that is a signal for something. But if every time you think a book is boring, you have to dive into your own soul, you will stop reading. So American Buffalo, though. There is a show about hunting that we love called Meat Eater. And the host is a guy, Stephen Ranella. But before he was the host of a show that really foregrounded the extent to which hunting is... Uh, connected with eating and being connected in an ecosystem. Before he did that, he was a writer. And he wrote this book, American Buffalo, about the complex history of buffalo in North America. It is brilliant. It is very funny. And even, even if you want to understand like a history of North America... And then it kind of zooms out and, you know, a 10,000-year 10, his, 10, history 
of North America told through a species. That book is mandatory. We have several in here that feel like they were pulled from like a high school AP English class um, from Virgil's Aeneid to Steinbeck's East of Eden to uh, Homer's Odyssey to Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. Those are important books. And like those are important books. And we actually have read those books. And they do help you understand story and narrative and human beings and the stories we've been telling ourselves. And um, they're not just there because we think that AP English classes are helpful because sometimes they're not. Um, Here's a great piece of advice about those books. Those books, just thank God for YouTube. Uh, Because Virgil's Aeneid used to require a whole library of secondary reading to understand how brilliant it was and to, and to sort of like grasp for yourself what Virgil is doing. Mm. But now you can YouTube Virgil Aeneid lecture and or Virgil Aeneid theme. You can do the same thing with any of Dostoevsky's books. And when I was in high school, there was SparkNotes, an utterly worthless summarizing tool that, oh my God, Gosh, SparkNotes, not, it's not just that it made people not read books. That wasn't its, like, that wasn't the worst thing it did to reading. It also just made books sound terrible, and it itself misread books. So if that was the last resource you had to sort of help you through, there are whole YouTube channels and lecture series on many of the great texts that if you are going to look at the classics— you have got to know why it was written. That's like the thing that annoys me so much about the Western canon is Ernest Hemingway was responding to the fads of his time. And high modernism in fiction didn't come out of nowhere. But people loved Hemingway because they read 90% the popular fiction of the day and 10% Hemingway. And if you don't know what was happening, I don't think that there actually is enough aesthetic value in mm-hmm. most classic books in and of themselves to actually enjoy them. You have to understand and to dive into the world around the book. Totally. I mean, nothing, 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 nothing is created in a vacuum. And going into those books, trying to just sort of dissect them like some sort of frog on the table, you're like, I, why are we trying to understand the metaphor behind the color of the drapes is like this classic moment and that never actually happens. But it's that you're going to be grasping at straws. It's going to not have meaning or implication if it's just this important book that you should say that you have read. Like it's just, you've ripped it from its context. You've, you've ripped it from its importance and it's going to have no impact. So yeah. And back to your point earlier, if it's not the right season, don't force yourself to read it. There's a high school Sam that didn't read those books that a mid-20s Sam came back and read and was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I don't know how I missed this the first time. Well, a decade does a lot for your interest and the ways that things will land. I think as I look at this list, I'm now asking myself, I have to pick three. If you've never read anything on this, you may not have it in front of you because maybe a half of you listening actually have this, probably even less. Um, the three that I would say 
to pick up if you have not would be Norman McLean's Young Men in Fire. I loved reading Young Men in Fire and the history of the smoke jumpers and the story of like his actual experience or the story that he's telling of it. It just it reeks of adventure and young men and wilderness and like it's ah, it's so good. I won't say anything else. Um, the other book I would say to pick up is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson and let it be uncomfortable. Or you could watch the movie that they're making of it. Or you could watch the movie 13th that's on uh, Netflix, which he collaborated a lot with. Um, read it. Re- sit with why it's hard, it's uncomfortable, it makes you angry, it makes you wish you had picked up something else. And then ask yourself what you should do. The third book I would recommend is The War of Art. And I recommend it all the time um, because you've had your your piece of like, justice and humanity and you've had your piece of wilderness and and young men and testosterone and bravery and then you have this piece of creating and struggle and it you can read the war of art in an afternoon then you can read young men and fire in a weekend and just mercy will probably take you a couple of weeks yeah my book's difficult Okay, three books. Um, which ones? If you have not read Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, that's one of those books that sort of, you know, it sits enthroned with the Lord of the Rings trilogy and some of the very first uh, novels I read, like children's novels I read, like The Great and Terrible Quest as just... I would love to be able to read that book for the first time again. It's a novel. It's regarded as the best novel C.S. Lewis wrote. Absolutely wonderful. I'm going to do a twofer because all you have to read is the introduction. And and in fact, one of them, I've only ever made it through the introduction. Hans Urs von Balthasar, uh, The Glory of the Lord, the first installment in his series on... The Nature of God, his series on theology, and this is a theological aesthetics, and it is, what if you read God starting with beauty instead of starting with uh, Aristotelian rationality? First hundred pages of that book are the introduction, and I think, you know, Hans Urs von Balthasar and Karl Barth were friends, and each Hans Urs von Balthasar is Catholic— Karl is Protestant. Nevertheless, they each regarded the other as the only man living with whom they could just have a conversation and not edit themselves. Read the introduction of that book and you'll see why. You would have to spend a career reading philosophy to understand uh, why he's picking the people he's picking in that introduction to interact with. And the, yeah, so, but even if you don't get it, which I don't get, most of the introduction, uh, what you will get about beholding God is wonderful. Similarly, Christian Smith, To Flourish or Destruct, that book I think is actually much easier to get through. Christian Smith is a sociologist. Just read his introduction on what are human beings and how do we differ from the going definition. Every culture 
can, you know, has a story, has multiple stories that are trying to tell you what reality is. We have uh, secular humanism is one of the big stories in the West. And it has an account of what people are that is intensely problematic, flagrantly wrong. And it, it sometimes I can't, sometimes I just, I get agitated when I'm driving, when I think about that particular concept is why don't people think there are such things as persons and um, how have we so failed to understand that a human being is a thing? Okay. Number three, easy one, uh, longbows in the far north. That is a collection of beautifully written hunting stories and written by a doctor um, who also was a traditional bow hunter, meaning instead of using modern archery equipment, uh, he's using a stick and string. He's, He's a medieval archer out there in the woods hunting moose and bear and elk and caribou and... He's a keen observer of the heart and of nature, and especially if you like hunting, but actually even if you're sort of curious about what hunting means to the human soul, that is a wonderful collection of short, uh, true stories that took place, most of them in the Arctic Circle. We love hearing some of the emails from you guys that many of you are going through these books and Easter eggs that are in the beginning of these print editions. Um, There's a lot of books here that even I haven't read, Um, but they all do fall into this sort of swath of a category of things worth spending time on, even if it's just the introduction, even if it's just in a little season, um, even if it are even if the topic is things that you don't have to do anything about, which I think is actually really healthy. There are many things in here that demand a reaction or a new way of thinking. And there are many things in here that are just enjoy the story of someone in the woods. Um, But I think they're all pointing in the direction of growth and betterment. And so when people ask, what's your book list? We now can just say, open up a copy of volume two. Take a look at the inside covers. And then read everything else every one of those authors has ever written. And you will be on a good start for the next 10 to 20 years. (laughs) 